If you've ever traveled to Israel, then you will know that when you visit Jerusalem, unfortunately, you can no longer see the temple. That's because the temple has been torn down since the year AD 70. And now, unfortunately, there is a a Muslim monstrosity there in that same place. But what you can see is actually truly amazing because if you go down to where the foundation stones are, you can still see the original foundation stones that once held up the great temple there built by the Romans. And the size of those stones is truly mind-boggling. As you stand there and and, and stare at these huge stones, you have to wonder how in the world did the Romans cut and move these stones into place without the use of, of modern technology. And I think you understand that every building built at that time, and even still today, required the right foundation. Huge stones were laid for the foundation. But of all the stones that were laid, there was one particular stone in every building of that time period that was the most important stone in the entire foundation. It is the corner stone. The corner stone was typically the largest stone in the foundation, and it held up a great amount of the weight of the building. But more than that, the cornerstone was cut in such a way that the rest of the structure of the building was squared to that cornerstone. And so it was in a real way both a support of the building and it was responsible for the overall integrity and structure of the building itself. With that illustration in mind, the authors of Scripture, inspired by God, used the cornerstone as an illustration for the coming Messiah. In in Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, we read, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus would then go on to apply this to himself. In Matthew 21, beginning in verse 42, Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus himself then is the most important stone in the entire kingdom of God. The church is built upon Jesus Christ and the church gets its direction, its design, its mission and purpose from the Lord Jesus Christ alone. But astonishingly, not everyone sees Jesus as this precious cornerstone. In fact, the most devout Jews of Jesus' day missed it. When he reads or says in Matthew 21, he quotes Psalm 118 there, he's actually quoting it as a verse of judgment against the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief leaders of the people who have rejected him. Listen to the rest of what Jesus says there in Matthew 21. Verse 42, which we just read, Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then he goes on to say this, Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone himself will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. 
When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Now, how could the religious leaders of that day so badly misjudge who Jesus Christ was? But more importantly, how can we be sure that we don't fall into the same trap and misjudge the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, in our text today, we will have a chance to marvel at one of the clearest examples of Christ's divine power. This is a text that will help us see that indeed Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. All does rest upon him, but it also will reveal some of the major heart issues that cause unbelief. We're going to step away for one week from the book of Hebrews this morning and take a brief field trip into the gospel of John, John chapter 9 specifically. But don't worry, we're not really fully disconnecting from Hebrews because what we've been studying in Hebrews, the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses, comes into clear view here in our passage. And so we'll take what we learn from John 9 and then bring it into our study of Hebrews next week as we continue on. Now, when it comes to the Gospel of John, we find ourselves very privileged because John himself tells us exactly what his goal was when he wrote his Gospel. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, the Apostle writes this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That is why John carefully chose the the unique stories and teachings from Jesus' life and ministry is because he's weaving them together, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that you might hear it, read it, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have eternal life. It is my prayer this morning that as we study this one section in the Gospel of John, that exactly that will be the response. That those of us who know Christ will be emboldened in our faith in him. And if you are an unbeliever this morning, we pray that you might come to see the glories of Christ and the truth of the Gospel in John 9 this morning. Now, I know if you're part of our church, you think I'm incapable of preaching more than two verses at a time on a Sunday morning. But I'm going to prove you wrong this morning because we're going to be covering 41 verses in John chapter 9. So, get ready. Here we go. Now, leading into John chapter 9 in the gospel, Jesus has been performing miracle after miracle, proving that he is the Messiah. In fact, the more Jesus proves that he's the Messiah, the interesting thing is the greater the opposition becomes against him. It's like it becomes clearer and clearer who he really is, and instead of embracing him, the majority of the religious leaders especially push further and further against him. In fact, in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, that chapter opens with Jesus' own brothers not believing in him, mocking him, ridiculing him. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus makes one of his great I am statements. And he says, I am the light of the world. And in John chapter 9 that we'll be studying, he's going to show us what he means by that statement, I am the light of the world. But before we read chapter 9, we have to read the end of chapter 8. Because at the end of John chapter 8, Jesus gives one of the clearest, um, most obvious recognitions of his deity. Look at John chapter 8, beginning in verse 51. 
Jesus is here. He's, he's talking to the Jews. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? That's the question. Who are you saying that you are, Jesus? Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you've not, not come to know him, but I know him. And, I, and if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and yet you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Notice where he was. He went out of the temple. He's in the temple saying these things. And just in case you missed it, when he says, before Abraham was, I am, where does that name come from? That's the proper name of God that God gave of himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and 4 as he calls, Exodus, or calls Moses into ministry. Jesus claims the name of God to himself. So this is a clear recognition, acknowledgement, pronouncement of his own deity. And the Jews understand exactly what he's saying because they believe him to be blaspheming and they pick up stones to throw at him. Now all of that hostility is in the background of what's coming now in chapter 9. In chapter 9, we have before us a, a beautiful narrative of Jesus healing a man who was born blind. And because this is a narrative account, we're not going to read all 41 verses at one time. Instead, we're going to let the narrative unfold piece by piece. And there are four scenes here. If we break this down, it breaks down neatly into four scenes. I'm going to mention them up front, but then we'll walk through them piece by piece. In verses 1 to 7, we're going to see a miraculous demonstration. In verses 8 to 12, we'll see a humorous deliberation. In verses 13 to 34, we'll see a devious interrogation. And finally, in verses 35 to 41, a gracious salvation. And all of this culminates to make one key point. Jesus gives salvation to the humble, but judgment to the proud. Jesus gives salvation to the humble, but judgment to the proud. Now, with that said, let's turn to this first scene in John chapter 9, scene number 1, a miraculous demonstration. Let's read the first seven verses of chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go, 
wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now the text begins as he passed by. This is in transition from chapter 8 to chapter 9. And it may be that Jesus walked out of the temple after that uh, harsh interaction with the Jewish leaders and then immediately passed by this man. We can't say that to be sure, but it may have flowed right out of the last scene. But nonetheless, it must have been fairly quickly after chapter 8 takes place. But he sees this man, the text says, that has been born blind. It doesn't tell us how they knew immediately that he'd been born blind. Perhaps this was a person that was famous for having been born blind. A lot of people knew who he was. We're not sure. But that fact, the fact that he was born blind, becomes a huge part of this narrative account. And it becomes a source of great confusion, a troubling point for the disciples. In fact, we could say it becomes a theological conundrum. When they see this man born blind, they have some questions. And so they ask this of Jesus. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now that question betrays much about the theology of the disciples at this time. The, the disciples are, are living under something called retribution theology. And what that was was a teaching that every single time a person experiences uh, personal sickness... It is always because of punishment for personal sin. That's the idea of retribution theology. That's what the disciples assume is happening here. We have a man. He's born blind. Someone must have sinned because that's the only explanation in their mind for why this has occurred. So they ask Jesus this question. Now, we have to admit that in the general sense, there is some truth to that because, of course, where did sickness and death come from? It comes as a result of the fall, as a result of sin entering into the world. So in that sense, all sickness, all death is related to sin and comes from sin as a result of sin. And we even have biblical examples of certain occasions where uh, sickness and even death are, by God's de decree, the, the direct consequence of someone's personal sin. Think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Or think about the, the, the Corinthians and communion in Corinth. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 there that, that some of the people, there's the text, some of the people were, were taking of the table wrongly, and because of that, some had become sick and even died, the text says. So that, that does happen. We're not denying that. But where they got it wrong is they understood that every single time a person is sick, it is because of a punishment for their sin. But the book of Job, of course, clearly refutes that point. That not every time we experience tragedy or difficulty is it necessarily a punishment or a consequence directly for personal sin. And Jesus is going to correct that thinking. But you can understand, put yourself in their shoes for just a moment, pretend that you actually believe in that same theology, you can see how this is a conundrum. Here's a man that was born blind. So who sinned? Because he, if he was born in this condition, how could he have sinned and then received a consequence? Actually, some Jews did teach that infants could, could sin in the womb. They take that from Genesis 25, 22, where it says Jacob and Esau struggled in their mother's womb. They said that Esau was trying to murder his brother Jacob in the womb and therefore committed sin. That's obviously a bit of a stretch. But some 
must have believed that to be true. And so they're thinking, what did he do? Maybe he sinned in the womb. Or if it wasn't him, then surely it must have been his parents that committed some great error. And that's why he was born in this condition. Jesus is going to make it very clear that neither of those things are the case. Verse 3, Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now that is a profound statement because what Jesus is saying is that this is the plan of God for this man's life, that God on purpose with great intentionality and care caused this man to be born blind for his own good sovereign purposes. From before the world began, this was God's plan. God, Jesus looks at this man. He doesn't see a theological conundrum. He sees an opportunity for the glory of God to be put on display. Now, that's instructive for us but because we have to remember that our suffering, our difficulties are intended by God to be a stage upon which the glory of God can be displayed. It's a reminder for us not to waste our pain, not to waste our sickness, not to waste our suffering and our trials. Because though they are difficult, sometimes soul-crushingly difficult, God intends to use them every time for good spiritual ends and purposes. You say, what are those purposes? Well, in Scripture, there are four of them primarily, four things. If you want to know how is it that God would want to use my suffering, here are four things that God may be doing, is doing through your suffering. One, he uses our suffering to reveal his own glory. Two, to produce personal holiness within us for our sanctification. Three, for the edification of his church. As people see you responding biblically in your trial, it builds up the church as a whole. And then fourthly, to spread the gospel to the nations. God uses our suffering to open up opportunities to share the goodness of the gospel with other people that we would never have encountered if we hadn't gone through that trial. So this, this calls us to attention. It calls us to ask the question, are we wasting our pain? Are we wasting our sickness? Are we wasting our trials or are we using them for the glory of God? Jesus sees a blind man here and he says it's not because he sinned in the womb. It's not because his parents have sinned. It's because God has a sovereign plan to use this man's blindness to display his glory. And we're going to see exactly how that happens. Verse 4 he says, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This is the same declaration that he made back in chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. And very soon he's going to explain what he means by that fact. There is some debate about what he means here when he talks about the day and the night, that we can work while it's day, but the night is coming when no one can work. There is a lot of opinions there. I think the best way to take that in context is that he's talking about the day, that is, his earthly ministry, will soon come to an end. There will be a brief period of time of, of darkness directly after his death, but soon there will come more opportunity to serve him, especially once the Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost. But it is a reminder, Jesus is still the light of the world. 
Just because he's sitting at the right hand of the Father doesn't mean he's not the light of the world. He's working through his spirit, through the word, through the church to bring about his purposes. It is a reminder for us that life is short. Jesus is saying the time is short. The time is drawing near to the end of his life. And the truth is the same is true for us. The time is short. Life is a vapor. Life is a breath. Use the time God's given you to serve him. But in verse 6, it moves to the actual heart of the action of the narrative. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to his eyes, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now this is an incredible uh, display of the sovereignty and the power of Jesus Christ as the God-man. Notice that Jesus initiates this entire scene. There are many cases in the scripture where people are begging Jesus to come and heal their loved ones. We have another blind man, you remember, yelling above the crowd, Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on me. This blind man doesn't seem to even know that Jesus is in the area. Jesus initiates this entire scene. It's all his plan. There's no way for us to know exactly why Jesus chose in this particular instance to use clay. Uh, there are a lot of a lot of Uh, speculations about that. We don't want to get lost in the symbolism of that too much because the point of this is what he is doing in and through this miracle. He's going to heal this man and he sends him to a place called the Pool of Siloam. Now, if you've been to Israel, you may have seen the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam has been found by archaeologists. It's still there today. In fact, one of the highlights of my life is I got to preach this text standing in front of the actual Pool of Siloam with two Jewish men holding microphones in my face. So that was an amazing experience. Pray for their salvation. They heard the gospel this close. Um, it was, it was a, a, a wonderful experience. It's a real place. It was a, a pool that was dug by King Hezekiah. There's a great history behind this pool because he, he diverted the water so that it came inside the wall. You remember at this time in warfare, they would, they would surround a city outside the wall and cut off all supplies. No water, no food. It's called a siege. And they'd try to starve the people out. So King Hezekiah brought water into the city underneath the wall through the pool of Siloam so that if they were under siege, they would have water. And so this became a very important pool. MacArthur notes that this was a pool that was used for a special ritual during the Feast of Tabernacles in which the priests would draw from this pool and carry the water back to the temple and pour it out as an offering to God. So the water came to be a symbol of God's provision of water for the people in the wilderness. Remember, Jesus in chapter 8 just had this encounter. He walks out of the temple. The pool of Siloam then would not have been too far away. So Jesus, the sent one from God, comes to this man and sends him to the pool called Sent. And what this man is going to find, that while the pool itself represents the provision of God, this man has just met the greatest provision of God, Jesus Christ himself. And he finds that out because the text adds, so he went away and came back seeing. Came back seeing. The man obeys the command from Jesus, goes to the pool, washes, and immediately, completely, verifiably, he is healed. 
through and through. No question about it. No way to deny this man was blind because he was born this way. And no way to, not, to deny that he can see because it's very, very obvious when a person receives their sight. A real, verifiable miracle. Now before we move on to scene number two, I just want you to, to put yourself there. Feel what this man must have felt. This is a man that has spent his entire life in darkness. He is, is only related to the world through, through, through what he can hear, through what he can taste, through what he can, can feel, through what he can smell. But he's never seen these things. All of a sudden, all the, sight, the sounds that he's been living around come to life. He can see them. This is a man who's never even seen the face of his own parents. And so what does he do? Immediately, he jumps up and he goes home. He goes to his own neighborhood, excited to see everyone and say, look what Jesus has done for me. But he finds that he has mixed reviews. Let's look at scene number two, a humorous deliberation. A humorous deliberation. Verse 8, therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who's called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Now, in verse 8, we learn that this man was a beggar by occupation which makes total sense because there would have been no job for a blind person at this time. Also, remember the social stigma. Everyone thought it was because of his sin that he was blind, and so he would have been reduced to begging as his only means of providing for himself. But now he shows up in town having received his full sight, excited to see his friends, family, and neighbors, and a very comical scene uh, follows. Because his neighbors begin to argue about whether or not it's really the same guy right in front of him, as if he's not standing there. It's meant to be fairly comical. Finally, in the midst of this debate about whether he's the guy, he he says, I am the one. It's me. Look at me. I mean, it's it's as obvious as as, as Superman taking off his glasses. Oh, it's Superman. That's the worst costume of all the superheroes. Of course, it looks the same. It's just glasses. He's like, I I literally opened my eyes. That's the only difference. It's me. And they're saying, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, Maybe it just looks like him. He says, no, it is me. And they say, well, then tell us, how then were your eyes opened? The man begins to defend himself, and he says, well, it's the man Jesus. He's the one. Who gave me my sight? So upon hearing that, the next natural question is, well, where, then where is he? If he opened your eyes, where is he? It appears that Jesus didn't even go with the man to the pool of Siloam. So this man's never yet even seen Jesus. He just heard his voice. He went and obeyed, and Jesus is now out of the picture. In fact, Jesus doesn't come back until verse 35. An entire uh, scene is going to unfold here without Jesus in the picture. But what we find is that though Jesus is not physically present, all of this goes exactly accordingly to his sovereign plan. That brings us to a third scene, a devious interrogation. A devious interrogation beginning in verse 13. Let's read 13 and 14. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now, the people who knew this man who was formerly blind, 
they don't know what to make of this miraculous claim, and so they do what all they know to do. They bring him to the Jewish leaders. Let's let them figure this out. They, they can sort out what's happened. This is a spiritual type of thing. Let's go to our spiritual leaders, and they can help us figure this out. Now, it's not exactly clear exactly who these Pharisees are. It doesn't appear to be the full Sanhedrin, but maybe a, a smaller number, a smaller group that had some authority given to them, perhaps from the Sanhedrin. But either way, they bring them to them for a verdict on what's happened to this man. But in verse 14... A very important piece of information is added. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now if you've read the New Testament at all, then when you hear those words, it was a Sabbath, it's almost like dun, dun, dun. Like we, we, we all understand that is not going to play well with the Jewish leaders. This has been a regular problem in the ministry of Jesus that he continues to do things on the Sabbath that the religious leaders hate, but they believe he should not do, and he does it on purpose. And so this brings us to an interrogation. There are actually three different interrogations that these Pharisees uh, carry out in order to supposedly dig up the truth are trying to figure out what's really happened here. The first interrogation we'll call the healed man, round one. The healed man, round one, verse 15. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man's not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Now the blind man is asked again to recount his story. So he does so in verse 15. Upon hearing of the miracle, the Pharisees are immediately divided. Half of them say right off the bat, he can't be from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. So he can't be a good guy. The other half says, wait a minute. How can we say this is not a good guy? Look at what he's done. How can we say he's not from God? And so there's an immediate rift and division, as there always was, about Jesus. Now, you may be asking, what exactly are they saying that Jesus did wrong? What Sabbath regulation did he supposedly break by healing this man? D.A. Carson mentions two uh, uh, traditions that were broken when Jesus did this. First of all, he made with his saliva clay that would have broken the command against kneading on the Sabbath day. And then he also healed a man, which broke the regulation of giving medical care to someone unless they were in imminent danger of death. And so they say, this, this guy, clearly, he's, he's no good. But there's just one problem with their assessment, isn't there? What verse in the Old Testament, what verse in the Mosaic law says you can't knead on the Sabbath? What verse in the Mosaic Law says you can't help someone and offer medical care on the Sabbath? You won't find it. So where did this come from? Their traditions. They had added man-made regulations on top of God's regulations. And what they're upset about is Jesus has disregarded those man-made regulations and really doesn't care about them at all. But they had elevated their own traditions to the level of Scripture. And so they say, this man is a sinner. But the second group in verse 16, others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? Because there is this division, shockingly, they turn to the man himself and say, what do you think about him? Verse 17, so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? 
And he said, he is a prophet. Now this man's description of Jesus as a prophet is the first hint that he's beginning gradually to understand who Jesus really is. He's beginning to understand there's something special about this man. He called him Jesus the first time, the man Jesus healed me. Now he calls him a prophet. And we're going to see his understanding continue to grow. But the Pharisees refuse to accept the idea that Jesus is really a prophet. And so they do the only thing they know to do. They try to discredit the witness himself. Let's tear down the witness. That brings us to interrogation number two, the healed man's parents. Verse 18. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Clearly, the Pharisees want more information. They, they've got to find a way to discredit this man. They says, I know, we'll bring his parents in here because surely the guy never was blind in the first place. This whole thing's just made up. They bring in his parents, and his parents testify, yeah, that's, that's him, that's our son. And yeah, he, he was born blind, but we don't know how he's now come to have his sight. It's possible that they had not yet heard the story, but... But unlikely, you would think that as a man's neighbors are coming around and things as he's showing himself to those he knew that he would have already told his parents. But perhaps they really didn't know. But the reason that they throw everything back on their son is because of verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. They would be excommunicated. If they confessed Jesus as Messiah, they'd be thrown out of uh, really Jewish life. William Hendrickson says the one who was unsynagogued was virtually cut off from the religious and social life of Israel. It was, it was a, a death sentence for your social life. You, you would have no interaction with the people that you had lived life with formerly. And so they say, ask him. He's of age. When they say he's of age, they mean he's at least, at a minimum, 13. He's gone through his bar mitzvah at age 12, and now he is considered a legal adult in that culture. And therefore, ask him. We don't know how old this man was, but he was at least older than 12. So they get nowhere with the man's parents. And so they say, all right, round three. This is our third round of interrogations. They bring the man back, the healed man, round two. Look at verse 24. So a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing, that you don't know where he's from. And yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. I notice in verse 24, the beginning of this third round of interrogations, they tried to, to, to get this man to deny Jesus. They basically say, come on. Give glory to God. That is God the Father alone. Give glory to God. God's the one that did this for you, not this Jesus. And specifically, they try to get him to confess Jesus as a sinner. But this man's been changed by Jesus. Jesus just has radically altered his life. Jesus met him for 30 seconds and showed him the highest form of compassion. These men, supposedly the religious elite, have had him there for for maybe hours going over this and over this, accusing him and embarrassing him. And so he boldly proclaims these wonderful words. The heart of this text comes down to this. Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, Now I see. The man sticks to the most important detail of the story. Jesus healed me. That's the only thing that he could see. I've never met the man. I don't know the man, but I know that he healed me. Now the Pharisees are scrambling. This is not at all going the way that they want it to go. And so they think maybe we can, if we get him to repeat his story, we can find some discrepancy. And so they say, tell us again, how did he do this? But the man doesn't give in. Verse 27, he he uses sarcasm against the Pharisees. He says, why are you asking me again? Wait a minute. You don't want to be his disciple too, do you? And they revile him. In verses 28 to 34, there's a contrast between the faith of the man who was born blind and the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. There's this great ironic twist. The teachers of the law become the students, and the man born blind, uh, supposedly born in sin, becomes the teacher. Of course, we know we're all born in sin, but you know in this, this case what I'm talking about. They're connected to his blindness. The Pharisees' response in verse 28 reveals the depth of their own spiritual blindness. They resort to ridicule, to intimidation, trying to do all they can to get this man to deny Jesus. They should have been celebrating. They should have been going to find Jesus so they could worship him and bow at his feet. Instead, they're doing all that they can to discredit the king of kings. Now notice, when they get upset because he insinuates that perhaps they want to be the disciples of Jesus, whose disciples do they claim to be? Moses. Moses, isn't that interesting? And now Hebrews comes rushing right into our text. They say, look, we're not this man's disciples. We're the disciples of Moses. You know now, hopefully, if you've been with us, that the Jews revered Moses as the prophet of prophets. They say, look, we've got Moses as our leader, as our mentor. We know that God spoke to him, but we don't know who this man is. The irony of that is that if they had truly loved and believed the words of Moses, they would have rejoiced to see Jesus. Let me read to you our text that we'll study next week, Hebrews chapter 3, and how it ties in to this very idea. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ 
was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. Notice there in verse 5 of Hebrews, it says that Jesus or Moses' ministry served as a testimony of things to come. Moses pointed forward to another who is Christ himself. What these Pharisees have done is they've shown that they, not only are they not true disciples of Moses, they're just like those Jews who died in the wilderness, who actually lived under Moses' ministry because they still don't get it. They still don't believe the scriptures. They're still hard-hearted against the sovereign plan of God. And in verses 30 to 33, we have this beautiful argument where essentially the blind man says, it's an amazing thing that you don't know who this man is or where he comes from. And he points again to the miracle. Now notice what's happened here. We're watching the the thinking of this man change. We're seeing him come to realize the true significance of what's happened to him. And as he describes to the Pharisees what's happened, we see that he now understands that him receiving his sight was not just a miracle. It was a divine sign. It was God pointing to something about this man, Jesus Christ. He says, we know who he is. We know where he's from because we've never in the history of humanity heard of somebody opening the eyes of a man born blind, and yet he opened my eyes. The only explanation is that he is from God. He's convinced. The Pharisees should have been convinced. But in verse 34, we find they're not convinced they answered him you were born entirely in sins and are you teaching us so they put him out when it says they put him out it doesn't mean they just sent him out of the room it means they excommunicated him they put him out of synagogue worship the thing his parents feared has happened to him but did you catch the irony here because essentially the pharisees are now having to acknowledge that the miracle did take place. They, they, can't, they can't deny it. And so all they can say is, look, you were born in sin. We, we're the leaders, and they just put him out. They're, they're unable to disprove it, and so they simply excommunicate the man. What a whirlwind of a day for this guy, right? He wakes up like every other day, goes to his place where he always begs. Next thing you know, Jesus heals him. The greatest day of his life, now he's excommunicated all in the span of a few hours. What has happened? Well, that brings us to one final glorious scene. Scene number four, a gracious salvation. Let's read verses 35 to 41. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, And he is the one who's talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. This is a beautiful, powerful scene in the life of our Lord. Notice 
He has healed this man of his physical blindness, but now he sets out to heal him of his spiritual blindness, to remove the the veil from his eyes to see who Jesus really is. And he comes to Jesus, or Jesus comes to this man. Notice, again, Jesus seeks him out. Upon hearing that he's been excommunicated, Jesus goes and finds the man, and he asks him an interesting question. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, that title, it's it's familiar to us. It's in the Gospels repeatedly. But what exactly does it mean when he asks, do you believe in the Son of Man? The Son of Man is a title that comes from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Let me read to you the, the first place that we see this title, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man is the Messiah the very Son of God, the King of kings, the one who would be the ruler of all, the eternal, universal ruler. And so that title, Son of Man, taken from Daniel 7, became a way of referring to the Messiah. And Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man on multiple occasions. So when Jesus walks up to this man and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He's saying, do you believe in the Messiah, the one prophesied from Daniel chapter 7? Now, remember, this man has never seen Jesus' face, but he has heard his voice. He knows who's talking to him, and he has implicit trust in this man because, remember, he's already convinced this guy is from God. He's a prophet. He speaks for God. And so he says very respectfully to him, essentially, just just tell me where he is. Point him out. I'm ready to believe in him because if you say it's him, I believe because you've proven that you are from God. Jesus says, you have both seen him, and he's the one who's talking with you. Think about that. Don't catch, don't miss the the weight of those words, you have seen him. On his first day of seeing, he's seen the Messiah. He had his eyes opened to behold the face of the Son of Man. And when Jesus says, you have both seen him and he is the one talking with you, the man does not hesitate. He goes from calling him Jesus to prophet to Lord. That says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He worshiped him. We've seen a true, full, complete spiritual transformation take place in this man. He's gone from just having his eyes open physically to spiritually seeing and understanding and embracing Jesus Christ for who he really is, the Son of Man, the divine Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Kings. He got it. Notice he worships him, and they're in public. This is not a private meeting. People are observing him. He doesn't care. He's not concerned that he's already been excommunicated from the synagogue because he has the greatest treasure that a man can have. Here is the Messiah. He doesn't hesitate. He's not ashamed. He worships in public in full view of everyone else. Jesus then makes a pronouncement. And this is how we know other people are around 
because it stirs up some, some questions. Based upon this man's faith and outward expression of worship to Jesus, he makes this statement in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Well, that's an interesting statement. Jesus is, by the way, not contradicting other statements when he says, I came into the world for salvation. That's absolutely true. Jesus came that he would bring salvation to all who would repent and believe in him. But what this statement is clarifying for us is that in coming to bring salvation, he also came bringing judgment. Because there would be those who believed in him, thus receiving salvation, but then there would be those who hardened their hearts against him, receiving his judgment. And he refers to the one who receives judgment as the blind and the one who receives salvation as the one who can see. So he's taken this, this healing, this miraculous event, and he's bringing out a spiritual point. But obviously there are some people listening on that find this disturbing. Verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? You see, they understand, I think he's saying that we're blind. Well, he is. But they're starting to get, they're saying, wait a minute, I, is he talking about us? He can't surely be talking about us, the religious leaders, as being blind. That's exactly what he's saying. Jesus clarifies and says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. It's a bit of a confusing statement. What is he saying to them? He's saying only those who have humbled themselves and admitted their sinful condition before Christ are those who have their eyes opened. But because you refuse to humble yourself and you continue to hold on to your supposed self-righteousness, you are still blind and dead in your sins. That's what he's saying. The difference is the blind man says, who is the Messiah? It's you. He immediately humbles himself. He worships him as, as Messiah. These Pharisees have hardened their backs, hardened their hearts, hardened their minds towards Jesus from beginning to end throughout this entire narrative. And he says, because you think you see, you stand there in your pride and your self-righteousness, and you think that you're doing really well with God because you think you see you're actually blind and you're dead in your sins. You need to become like this blind man who now sees and humble yourself before me, recognizing your sin and recognizing who I really am. That's what Jesus is saying. That's why this man was born blind. It's because in God's providence, in his sovereign plan, he always intended to make this point through healing this man. Isn't that amazing? When Jesus says this man was born blind, that the glory of God might be displayed in him, this was his plan all along. Ironically, the blind man who was considered by all to be cursed of God, steeped in sin, is the one who has his sins forgiven while the self-righteous Pharisees who were considered by the culture to be the most righteous, the closest to God, are cast out, condemned in their sin. As we consider how to respond to this, it really boils down to two simple words. 
The first response is faith. Faith. It really comes down to this question that that Jesus himself asked, who do you say that Jesus is? That's really what this is about. Who is Jesus Christ? Now listen, if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that you are the one that is spiritually blind and dead in your sins. You stand condemned before God. You have nothing to offer to God. You cannot make yourself right with God. You cannot be good enough to make up for your past sins. You have nothing to offer to God which he will accept. This text calls upon you to respond just like this blind beggar who had his eyes open, to understand that Jesus Christ alone is your only hope, that it's by his righteousness and by his sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins that you can ever hope to be made right with God. Because he lived, died, and rose again, we have real hope if we will humble ourselves, admitting, yes, you are right about me, I am a nobody. I am a sinner. I deserve your condemnation. But I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my only hope of salvation. If you will turn from your sins and humbly place your faith in Jesus Christ, then you will have your spiritual eyes opened. You will be saved just as this blind beggar was saved on that day. That is the message, the takeaway from this passage. And so if you're here this morning and you, you somehow have, have convinced yourself that you're going to be fine with God because of some goodness within you inherently, understand, like the Pharisees, Jesus says to you, you're still in your sins. But if you will humble yourself in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's the good news of the light of the world. He opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. The second response is also obvious, and it follows the first. The man says, Lord, I believe. And then what did he do? And he worshiped. Worship. Worship is the right response. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's so much here for us to take away. Worship Jesus as the great son of man from Daniel 7. He proved it by his life. He proved it by his death. He proved it by his resurrection beyond a shadow of a doubt. He proved it by his teaching. He proved it by his spotless life. He proved it by his miracles. There's nothing more that he could do to prove verifiably that he alone is the perfect son of God, the only Messiah. Worship him as such. Shine the light of the gospel to the world. Open your mouth and declare the glories of Jesus Christ. Be busy about the work of the Lord while you still have breath in your lungs. Pray for the salvation of the lost. They need God to open their spiritual eyes. And they're just as helpless to do so as this blind man was to open his physical eyes. We need God to do the miraculous work of regeneration in those that we love who are lost. Pray for them. Pray God open their eyes to the truth. And then embolden me to share the gospel with those that you put in in my path. This calls us to worship God by not wasting our pain, but by recognizing that whatever difficulties he's allowed in your life, and there will be many, are all on purpose. They're all on purpose, but not to be cruel, because God is good, and he desires to use even your darkest days as a stage to shine the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. But that will only happen if we see our life through this lens, through the lens of this text. 
as we see an opportunity in our suffering, as Jesus saw in this man, rather than just a difficulty. It's an opportunity to bear up under that burden by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God and allow him to use it for the sake of his kingdom. It's my prayer that we would boldly proclaim his lordship as the great son of man, emboldened in our faith, encouraged in our worship because of our text here in John chapter 9.